There's growing recognition that far too many American students arrive at school with unmet needs, from uncorrected vision problems to hunger or even homelessness that make it more difficult, if not impossible, to succeed in school. And that's led to growing efforts by schools to address those needs, either directly or by connecting students with resources in the local community. So-called integrated student supports, or wraparound services, are hardly new, but they're attracting growing philanthropic investment and received a boost from the Every Student Succeeds Act, which called them out as a strategy for school improvement and allowed more federal dollars to pay for them. All that's missing at this point is solid evidence that this approach improves student outcomes. I'm Marty West, editor of Education Next, and my guest today is Michael McShane, director of national research at EdChoice and author of Supporting Students Outside the Classroom, which will appear in the summer 2019 issue of the journal and is available now at educationnext.org. Mike, welcome back to the EdNext podcast. Hey, great to be with you and actually here in the EdNext offices. <laughs> That's right. Uh, usually we have to do these over the phone. It's great to be able to have the conversation in person. Uh, so one of the many things I like about your article is that you didn't report it from your desk. You actually got out there and spent some time on the ground in a school, uh, a charter school, in fact, that's made integrated student supports a key part of its strategy to serve students. So tell us a bit about what this looks like on the ground. Yeah, I had the opportunity to shadow Crystal Green really honestly to just try and keep up with Crystal Green, which was a task in and of itself, who is a, a site coordinator for communities and schools in Kansas City. Um, she serves at the Crossroads Charter School in downtown Kansas City. And I had the opportunity to follow her from before school when she was organizing this kind of motivational Monday. So she was setting out food for some community members um, who would come in and kind of line, I sort of think of it as like almost like before a sporting event where you have like all the people cheering for them outside. So folks who were who would line up as the kids were getting off the buses or were coming into school and give them a round of applause and high fives and show that the community was interested in, and cared about them. And just like as soon as that was done and she was trying to organize somebody to take a picture of it, her day really started. And it was a mix of checking in on particular students that she had um, in her sort of particular caseload, working on some of these whole school interventions that she's responsible for as well, um, and really just constant interaction. There was a lot of hugs, there were a lot of high fives, there was a lot of I need to follow up with you later about X, Y, or Z. Um, just a really, really wonderful, warm, caring person to follow around for a day. And she's so both keeping track of students and supporting them in the school, but also, as I understand it, playing a role in connecting them with outside resources. Is that right? Yeah. So the way of thinking about um, communities and schools, which is one provider, they're not the only provider of, of these integrated student supports, but I think is a helpful way to sort of think through them, is that they provide what they call tier one and tier two supports. So your tier one supports are things that are actually done at the school-wide level. So these are things that are done for every student uh, in the school, usually organized around um, trying to improve either attendance, academics, or behavior. So some of the things she does in that is she has a kind of reward system for dress down days. She created like a lunch buddies program. She's organizing school dances, just a lot of the stuff to kind of connect students um, with the school in positive ways. She also has these tier two level supports, which is for, I think it was around 60 or 65 students that she's really like a case manager for. And she does a mix of providing services within the school. So in her office, she had this supply closet that had extra uniform clothes, um, 
different, you know, sort of sanitary um, objects, um, school supplies, all of that sort of stuff. She meets with those students regularly to have, um, to set goals with them around these particular areas, track their progress towards that. But you're right, she also has this kind of Excel spreadsheet of a lot of different community organizations that can do everything from providing eyeglasses, crisis intervention, trauma support, um, local nonprofit organizations and others that, that can help kids out. So it's a part of her job too is trying to connect students where it sort of gets out of her ability to deal with that or the school's ability to deal with that, connecting them to these outside resources. So Crystal is the site coordinator on behalf of Communities and Schools, an organization you've mentioned a couple times so far, just so we understand exactly their role. They're a national umbrella organization for uh, a lot of this work that's taking place in different parts around the country. Is that right? Yeah. So I think it started in New York in the 70s. And now it's it's a, a kind of a loose affiliation of, I think, 131 kind of independent. So I think the one that Crystal works for, I might be getting this not exactly, but like the communities and schools of mid-America, which mm -hmm. is like Kansas City, the, the metro Kansas City area. And so they work somewhat independently from one another, fundraising and providing for these things. But the national office does try and provide some support, doing some evaluations of different interventions, educating people, coordinating things. So it's kind of a loose national local affiliation. And of course, there are other organizations in the space as well, right? Uh, yes. Strive Partnership is one that you mentioned in the article, but it's also the case that districts can take this approach on their own, right? By sure. uh, providing wraparound services. Uh, can you give us some examples of, of both other organizations, but also how a district might think about doing this independently of a uh, nonprofit. Yeah, so you hear a lot about this in the district space. I mean, it seems to me that, you know, every school year starts with some kind of glowing profile of a hard charging principal or superintendent that says, you know, I notice X problem that my students have. So it's a lot of very popular to hear about school districts that have like, we put in laundry facilities in our schools or bring in dental clinics or, or those types of things. So those kind of ad hoc efforts. There was a big push in New York and the de Blasio um, administration was pushing that uh, very hard to work on these communities and schools. More so in, in a lot of those cases, operated these sort of services provided by the schools or the school district as opposed to necessarily some partnerships with outside organizations but definitely much more school focused but you're right there are some of these other organizations the the strive partnership was an interesting one to to bring up because i think um they describe themselves in many ways as kind of a backbone organization so they are providing support for the both the organizations that are providing services for kids and the folks that are working in schools to connect them. So they do data analytic work and kind of capacity building in those two spaces to try and make both of those groups of people better at what they do. So this work is in many ways inspirational. It's grounded in research about what matters for student success. It uh, also just seems to reflect common sense. If a student <laughs> shows up and can't read the blackboard or their materials, they're not going to be able to succeed. Yet, when you dig into the research that we have available to us on integrated student supports and uh, how it influences at least what we can measure about academic success, you find that the cupboard is, is a bit bare, yeah. or at least more disappointing than we might have expected. So 
Tell us a bit about that research and what you make of it. Yeah, so um, the, the organization Child Trends did a couple of kind of systematic reviews of the literature, reviews of the literature in 2014 and 2017. In the article, I interview um, one of the key researchers in that. And just to sort of to quote her on this, you know, some of the things she said was, there are a lot of null findings. She would argue that the findings are kind of neutral to positive when the methods are stronger and there are almost no um, negative effects that we would see from this. MDRC did some, um, I think, some really careful research back in 2017, particularly on communities and schools, looking at both those tier one and tier two interventions. And yeah, and they did find some positive things. So their kind of quasi-experimental evaluation of the tier one supports did see some increases in elementary attendance. But yeah, they didn't really find stuff in a lot of stuff that we would care about, right? High school graduation, even middle school attendance, behavior. The randomized control trial of the tier two interventions. That's the more intensive approach focused on a smaller number of students yes, with absolutely. more uh, specific supports. Yeah. yeah, so that found that they did see increases in students actually taking advantage of these services. It improved some of their attitudes about school. It improved some of their relationships with adults and peers. But yeah, you're right. I mean, they didn't really find big things related to achievement, attendance, or behavior, which is ostensibly the sort of three areas where they're really trying to sort of concentrate their, their their efforts. And we should mention there are some bright spots in the research literature yes. on these kinds of efforts. One of them involves an effort right here in Boston developed by a team at Boston College called City Connects, which I think has some fairly convincing yes. evidence that some of these efforts, especially if started very early in students' educational careers, may you know have some long-term benefits. But I think you're right in suggesting that there's, uh, you know, the evidence certainly suggests that this isn't a silver bullet or a, a slam dunk. Uh, and so what, how can that be? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's tough. I mean, part of me thinks that, you know, just like any edu educational intervention, right? Implement, I mean, this is sort of boring stuff at this point, but implementation matters, right? Human capital matters. Like the, the Ms. Green, Crystal, who I followed around, like, they don't make them like that everywhere. You know what I mean? Like she's just an incredible woman who did incredible things. And and if that's what it's going to require for this to work everywhere, that's a really difficult solution to try and find. So just on a human capital side, are these people that we're placing in schools great at what they do? There may be variation between those folks. Um, I think you have the classic kind of questions of implementation of is this something that's being worked into the school culture? I think at the school that I um, observed in, it was clearly a really important part of the school culture. Everyone was kind of rowing the boat in the same direction, and so it was adding on to what the school was doing. But it's quite possible that in, in other locations, it's not. They're working across purposes with one another, and so it's, it's not as, you know, it, they're not acting as force multipliers, but they're actually getting in each other's way. And I think there is a third bit that is important to think about, which is a lot of research I think still needs to be done because in many of these places, they're trying a lot of different interventions with kids that all could have varying levels of effectiveness. And, and I want to be clear, like I don't envy the site coordinators that look at the um, 
organizations that are available in their community and have to make these types of judgment. Do I go to this one sort of trauma response group or that one? I mean, they don't have the capacity to necessarily be able to adjudicate. Is one of these much better than the other? They have to rely on word of mouth and other things like that. So I think that that's a, a sort of third piece of it. And that's why, you know, organizations like Strive Partnership that are trying to do some of that capacity building, trying to do some of that evaluation for people, I think is a really positive development. Because in some cases, yeah, these folks are on an island trying to determine those things themselves. So yeah, I mean, it's the kind of nitty gritty classic stuff of, of, yeah, this obviously, this seems to make a lot of sense, but the execution of it matters. I suppose another perspective might be that some of this work is just a good in and of itself. Like yes. making sure that students don't have unmet mental, physical uh, health needs, uh, regardless of its implications for academic outcomes, is just something we can and should be doing. Uh, I guess the important point to keep in mind then would be that uh, you shouldn't necessarily expect that to translate directly into dramatically improved school performance and that we really need to think about these as separate uh, rather than a strategy where one is in service of the other. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, I think back to my time as a teacher. So I taught um, on the west side of Montgomery, Alabama, and several of my students, many of whom were, were great students, had suffered like really serious trauma in their life that if it was anyone that I knew sort of in my sort of social circle or others, that would be something that we would always be thinking about. Can you believe that when they were a child, this thing happened to them? Um, and so we, I think we ignore that at our peril and the thoughts of the long-term effects of that, that again, just might not be captured in test scores or even in things like graduation rates, but how they end up being members of families, members of communities and others, if those types of things are not treated, dealt with helping them learn to cope with it. So so yeah, I think both taking this kind of long-term view, accepting that some of these things are, are definitely hard to measure, but are clearly in existence in lots of communities across the country. And we, we will be better off if we help children learn to, to cope with a lot of these issues that they've been dealing with outside of the classroom. My guest today has been Mike McShane, Director of National Research at EdChoice. His article on supporting students outside of the classroom is available now at educationnext.org. Mike, thanks for being part of the podcast. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the EdNext podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts so that you don't miss an episode. While you're there, be sure to check out our archive and, especially if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It helps us find more listeners and more listeners to find us.